0: Thanks for pressing play. This week, I had lunch with a friend who uh, happens to be a legendary local journalist, and he told me that, in his opinion, mental health is the issue of our time, and I think there's a very good chance he might be right. I don't know about you, but uh, the squirrels juggling chainsaws in my head have been working overtime for several years now, given everything that's been going on. At a macro level, and frankly, uh, some of the stuff that's happened in our lives. Anyway, welcome to the second in our two-part series on neurodiversity and mental health. If you happen to miss psychopath Emmy Thomas, I would strongly uh, suggest you go back a couple of episodes and listen to it. Her name is Emmy Thomas, and uh, Emmy will challenge everything you think you know about psychopaths. And human identity. It's a fascinating dialogue. On this episode, uh, you'll learn a few things. How to know if you are neurodiverse. How to support yourself and others who are dealing with mental health. How to navigate the mental health world. And why the Mental Health Bible, which is called Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM for short, why our guest today says that the DSM is more fiction than fact, and much, much more. You see, our guest today is best-selling author Sarah Fay, and her new book is fantastic. It's called Pathological: The True Story of Six Misdiagnoses. It's a stunner. Matter of fact, the New York Times Book Review said it was a quote fiery manifesto of a memoir and Apple Books said that Sarah's new book is, quote, a powerful memoir by a deeply compelling person and a fantastic writer. You're listening to Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And we are the number one real dialogue business podcast for people who think that real conversations and real thinking make a real difference. Now, my friends at Pila are the makers of the most legendary new kitchen appliance that I've seen in at least a decade. It's called Lomi, L-O-M-I. And Lomi makes food waste a thing of the past. It's about the size of uh, maybe two uh, um, a toasters uh, or a big toaster. Uh, it's elegantly designed, beautiful. Uh, and around here, we've fallen in love with Lomi because what Lomi does is it takes your uh, kitchen food waste and makes it a thing of the past. And it turns it from nasty garbage into nutrient-dense magic dirt in a matter of hours. Unlike traditional composting, which if you're a gardener or a farmer, you know composting takes months. So if you think dragging wet, dripping, disgusting bags of food out to the garbage uh, is gross and you want to transform your kitchen from a waste-creating, environmental-herding dumpster into a magic dirt factory, visit my friends at Pila P-E-L-A dot earth. That's Pela dot earth, and uh, place your order for Lomi today. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Well, Sarah, it sure is great to meet you. How are you?
1: I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be
0: here. I'm so excited to have this conversation. I've been living in your world for a while. And uh, I guess right off the top, let me thank you for this uh, this wonderful book of yours. And I'm just curious, uh, this may sound like a f- funny question, but how are you in this time that we're living in? How is it the world, processing the world You know, I have a dear friend who says there's the micro, which is sort of the world that we live in, our our personal lives. And then there's the macro, the world world. And so how's the world for you right now?
1: And I'm assuming you mean the macro. Yes, the
0: macro. We'll talk lots about the micro, but how how does somebody with your micro (laughs) uh, relate to this macro?
1: Well, it's, in I was actually just writing about this, but since I got my doctorate, since I got my PhD, when you're just in a vacuum of, you know, you just don't even notice that the world is there. It's six years of being in the stacks when people really went in library stacks where there were real books. And, um, you know, I say I missed the entire Obama administration pretty much. Like I just never, I didn't get any of it. And so, but I was writing about how different things have changed for me and how I see myself now as someone who had a mental illness. I believe I've been cured. Um, there's no evidence to suggest that we cannot fully heal from mental illness, even serious mental illness like what I had. And But part of that, I've been looking back at, okay, what are the things I do to remain healthy. And that doesn't mean my mental illness is lying dormant at all times, which is what they tell us, which is really limiting to a person, right? You can never heal. I mean, how much more pessimistic can you get than that? But that you, you know, basically that I did still have a very extreme experience. And one way I love the description of mental illness, one metaphor for it is that it's like breaking a bone. And when you Break a bone, after it heals, which I didn't know, this is in physical medicine, the point of the break becomes the strongest part. And so if we think of mental illness or some sort of psychosis as a break, then we heal stronger. I mean, and looking at people with mental illness differently, which is that we're the strongest people here in some cases. But going to your question, one thing was that I see myself as someone who broke almost every bone in her body over 30 years, given what I went through. So I live accordingly. I honor what I've been through. I don't just think, okay, I'm well, and now I'm going to like party. (laughs) That's not happening. And so I do certain things. And one thing I do is I don't actually read the news very much. You know, and, and what's amazing about it is that the news finds you. And I, this is what I did in my PhD program, which is why I mentioned it. And I really don't know if the human brain is designed to know what's happening tens of thousands of miles away, especially dire things that are happening. And so I really believe it helps keep me level and it, it is a better way to live. Now, some would argue that you're ignorant and it's irresponsible and you're not being a responsible citizen, but it's tot- it really does... It's amazing to me how much it helps not only my mental state, kind of not having that flood in at me at all times, but it helps my relationships. People want to tell you things. and So you're the person who doesn't, who hasn't heard anything yet and they love it. So I highly recommend it for people.
0: <laughs> That's great. So you pay no attention to the news. Is that You really, you, you can do that?
1: I mean, I do, and occasionally, especially when you get the kind of tapping, scrolling itch, I do go on the Washington Post or wherever I might be. Sometimes i i have late, as of late, been interested in a couple of other. I mean, I'm very liberal, and so um, Barry Weiss, who was actually fired from the New York Times, or she left, excuse me, she left. Um, but she has an interesting, you know, substack, and I, I sometimes will read her substack because she comes at it from a different lens. Um, definitely. But yeah, so I stay as much away from the news without being an irresponsible citizen as I can.
0: It, it, it's interesting you say that because over the last, you know, ever since things went completely mental, um, and you can define when that was for you.
1: <laughs> I was going to say 19th century. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but I grew up consuming the news as a kid. I loved talk radio Uh, we were not exactly well off. I had a newspaper route from the time I was about 10 and I read that newspaper. And so, and I've been kind of a political junkie. I think when I was about five years old, I asked my uncle, who's a poli sci prof, uh, you know, Uncle Jimmy, how do you get a law changed? You know I mean? So I've sort of been like that, but um, can't do it now, man. Wake up in the morning. Don't put that. You know what the interesting thing I found? Not consuming it on TV is a huge thing to cut out because when you consume it on the internet, whatever media you like on the internet, you don't have the, <laughs> dun, 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 the scary music and all that. Like it's, you, and you can sort of throttle up or, th- or and go, well, you know what? I don't need to read. I don't need to see all the photos from Mariupol. I just, I don't. Uh, and you can sort of decide. And so I have found by cutting out uh, virtually all television news uh, and really sort of being, trying to be thoughtful uh, it helps not destroy um, my my will to live. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it what I think the other part of it is that my dissertation I actually wrote on partly on the media. So I already I know so many. I know how. I hate to just demonize it, but how corrupt it is and how flawed it is and has been since its inception in the 19th century. So there's that. And then doing all the research for pathological, I absolutely found the same thing. So, again, I'm not the person reading the news that's that's totally buying the whole thing.
0: Right. So uh, tell me a little bit about you said it was in your dissertation on the media. Yeah. Okay. so maybe tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So I wrote, uh, I had done interviews, so I had done literary interviews, meaning just interviews with authors, but also meaning long form interviews. And those were made um, famous by, of all places, Playboy and also the Paris Review. And it's funny, but we often make Hugh Hefner out. By the way,
0: Sarah, I I hate to interrupt you, but I I do find it fascinating. And maybe you'll tell me about this, (laughs) that a gal who at one point had anorexia, which at least to my Untrained uh, eye, as it, it often uh, pointed to the media and the sexualization of women and the ideal body and blah blah blah, has an effect on that. Is that a correct assumption? So it just there's yes. so, there's something exactly. interesting about a gal with that stuff. Uh, writing for Playboy, but I sorry, I just I digress. I
1: didn't write for Playboy. Don't worry. It oh, was I just thought you did write interview. for Playboy. Was, no, no, no. This is just where it's it, they made it famous. Oh, anyway, I the see. The whole point is, I did. I wrote a um, my dissertation was on the interview in media in American culture and how it functions, particularly in terms of authorship. I know. Eyes glazing over, but every dissertation title makes people to eyes glaze over. No,
0: I'm actually, I didn't know this at all. Uh, I'm fascinated about this because I have a very strong point of view on why uh, interviews are severely broken and actually do a lot of damage. But uh, tell me about what you found out about interviews.
1: Well, basically what I was, and this is so poignant now and wasn't as much at the time, but also really related to your podcast and what you do and how you're trying to, you know, one, make it alive and lively and genuine, and then also long form. Um, So what happened over time, I mean, it wasn't always this way, but in the fifties and sixties, the two magazines I mentioned playboy and the paris review and then also interview magazine which andy warhol started they did long form interviews and it really gave you a chance to spend maybe 30 minutes even reading the back and forth between the author and the interviewer and then i went on to actually do that myself and worked for the paris review not playboy
0: (laughs) okay that sounds a little more apropos (laughs) yeah yeah exactly and so what's your take on particularly audio and video interviews uh, in the media today?
1: Well, you know, I don't watch the news, as I said, so I don't really get those snippets or those like kind of soundbite things, although I was on the news and and was really impressed. It was a morning news show, and I was really impressed with the questions that the anchors asked, actually. So, I you know, I don't watch it regularly, but that was really surprising. And I, sh- I shouldn't say that, but, um, but yeah, they were really, uh, thoughtful and sensitive and interesting and all of that for the four minutes that I was on <laughs> and then it was over. Right. But I think podcasts are amazing. And I think that in some ways we make a big deal out of social media ruining culture, um, which I'm not so sure I agree with in some ways it is, da- you know, damaging. And in some ways it's amazing. And one, one argument is that it's ruining our ability to communicate. Well, we could argue that podcasts are certainly teaching people how to have conversations. And so, you know, technology has both sides. So if social media is ruining our ability to have a conversation, podcasts are really reminding us how to have, especially long form podcasts, how to really go in and talk about things.
0: Amen. Hallelujah, sister. (laughs) I think I do find there's a, there's sort of a bizarre irony the technology which sort of ensured the adhdization of the world <laughs> is the only media now left where long form authentic dialogue actually occurs yeah and you know uh, people have asked me and stuff you know are you going to sell your podcast or you what's what's the end game i said the end game is i want to have a conversation with sarah that's the end game And we had David Gergen on a little while ago, and I think he shared a similar view, which is a big part of the problem we have in the world today is our inability to have a conversation.
1: And on a podcast like this, you know, you're not arguing necessarily. It might get heated, it might get passionate, and that's a wonderful thing. But maybe people are actually more able to distinguish between yelling at each other and not hearing each other and having a passionate debate. Yes. And that's okay. It's okay to disagree. But right now it's either we're afraid to disagree or we're screaming at each other is right. how it seems. And that's a huge generalization, but you know, certainly it tends toward that.
0: And, and I often get criticized for not pushing back on a guest hard enough. And what some people don't seem to appreciate is that's not why I want to have this conversation with you. I want to have this conversation with you because I want to understand. I think you're a person worthy of engaging with. doesn't mean I'm going to agree with everything that's not the point. And some people want to come on and debate me and argue with me. And people want to have me on their thing and argue with them. And I'm like, I, I don't want to argue. There's enough of that. I don't want to do that. If you want to have a thoughtful conversation, I'm happy to do that. But if you just want me to call you an asshole and you want to call me an asshole, the world, I don't need to do that.
1: Yeah. And it was, I was on one podcast and most have not been this way, but he was so enraged about what he read from what he read in Pathological about psychiatry that yeah. he was so angry at psychiatry. I started defending it, <laughs> like really going <laughs> to the mat. And I was like, wait a second, I was the one who did a critique of this. What, what's going on?
0: So, yeah. <laughs> so, as I've sort of gotten steeped in your work, Sarah, one thing that occurs to me about you is it feels like that you are a missionary that there is some change in the world you're trying to bring for. I have a guess as to what it might be, because I think it's somewhat obvious if, if you're a thoughtful person who's consuming your work. But I would love to hear from you. A, do you feel like a missionary? Uh, a- and the degree to which you do, I- I'd love to hear about the mission.
1: It just gives me, I, I'm just so flattered that someone would call me that or that, that, and that this is the direction our conversation is going because I'm so grateful to have this direction in my life. But I absolutely feel the one thing I, I want to change the world, as I say to my publicist and my agent, and, but especially the mental health system and, and how we think of mental health diagnoses. So if I had to say it in one sentence, just off the cuff, I want to empower people by showing them and telling them and explaining to them what mental health diagnoses are and what they aren't and hopefully giving them power by doing that. Um, yeah. So that's what I would say.
0: Awesome. So maybe let's go to the heart or at least part of the heart of it. You'll tell me. Um, yeah. And if I say something that doesn't seem right or off or not the way you want me to think about it, by all means. So a thread I hear in your work and something I relate to as somebody who today, the, the nice phrase for a person like me. And I think a person like you is we're neurodiverse. <laughs> uh, and so, um, and so this sort of interesting thing around when one gets a diagnosis of some kind of neurodiversity, ADHD, anorexia, bipolar, whatever the thing is. And I'm, I'm four or five of them, depending on who you want to believe or whatever. Right. So I, by the way, I roll it all together. I call it dysfuclia but
1: <laughs> oh my god that's
0: brilliant <laughs> it's kind of my way of just going ah, fuck all you guys um and so for some people this is true for me a diagnosis was actually freeing and liberating and yet for many others if i understand your work correctly um it's actually a horrible label which is super limiting and so kind of oh, pop the hood on all of that for me if you could
1: yeah, I mean going, you know, you and I are, you know, similar in that, you know, I had six I was given six different diagnoses. You know, just speaking to the neurodivergent kind of wave that's going on right now, I'm I'm not sure I agree that all mental health diagnoses or mental illness in general is a kind of neurodivergence. I, I appreciate it. I think it's another attempt to destigmatize and to legitimize different ways of thinking. And I, I really get that. What concerns me about it is I was extremely ill. I wanted to end my life for long periods of time and tried to. That's dangerous. That's not neurodivergent, right? That's That was dangerous to myself. And if I were in a psychotic break and I was out in the middle of the winter with no clothes on, I would hope someone would look at me and say, oh, interesting, neurodivergent. Okay. And that would yeah, help it's me the middle of winter. Help.
0: That's a wonderful you naked know. lady. We always ask for more naked yeah. ladies at the window <laughs> and we seem to be getting them.
1: But so, you know, that's just... And then the other part about it, which again, I'm not, I have not read up on, and you might know way more about this than I do, is that, you know, neurodivergent was really meant for people with autism. And it's sort of been swept up by... um other areas like ADHD. And what's interesting to me about that, going to your question, is that for me, a mental health, and this is just my perspective, for me, a mental health diagnosis, each one was a self-fulfilling prophecy. When I was diagnosed with anorexia, I was 13 years old. My parents were divorcing. I was going to a new high school. I was terrified and I had a terrible stomachache and I was horribly sad and did not know how to process my emotions. So I had gone on a class trip, hadn't eaten in four days and couldn't hold down food or water. My parents rightly took me to the hospital and I saw a pediatrician. He weighed me and said, she has anorexia. No question about context or whatever. And all that really, you know, what that did is it made me see myself through a lens of diagnosis and all of my emotions, thoughts, and behaviors that way, though I could never have articulated this. Instead, what I did was I became an anorexic. I saw myself as an anorexic. So I didn't have anorexia. I was an anorexic. Um, And so that really then. uh, uh,
0: Sorry to interrupt you, Sarah. Does that mean there's a uh, sort of a uh, distinction you're trying to draw between somebody, you know, in the homeless world today, you know, sometimes as language evolves, it's bullshit, wokey stuff that makes someone like me angry. And sometimes I think it's actually very helpful. So in the homeless world today, people say uh, they're not homeless, they're people experiencing homelessness. And so are you, are you helping me to understand there are people who are an anorexic person and there are people who are experiencing anorexia or are there just people experiencing anorexia?
1: Just people experiencing anorexia. So So there's no such thing
0: as an anorexic person in your mind.
1: Right. And we call it person first language. So someone with autism rather than an autistic someone with anorexia, we put the someone first, we put the person first, you know, John has anorexia, not John is an anorexic or whatever the disorder might be, or a schizophrenic or whatever. But going, you know, going to this also is, is just that the diagnoses I then received when I received five more, they all became self-fulfilling prophecies. And I saw them only in a negative light. And they limited me. So by the time I received a bipolar disorder diagnosis, I was certain I would never hold a full-time job. I was already not living independently anymore and with my mother, and this was when I was in my 40s. I wouldn't have a long-term relationship. I would die early. I would cycle for the rest of my life, et cetera, et cetera. So it was very limiting to me. But I think it's important to note, like in the autism community, when we go to this uh, term like neurodivergent, and how they really owned that. The autism diagnosis is one of the few examples where that community, the diagnosis empowers them. It really, they get funding for their diagnosis. They get sort resources for their diagnosis. I mean, they, services, they really, and again, not for everyone, but it's a very different to me kind of mental health diagnosis. Also, I want to acknowledge that, like you said, a lot of people find relief in a diagnosis Um, but studies have shown that actually, especially the biological explanation, which has never been proven for any mental health diagnosis actually causes more self-stigma because you're basically telling someone it's in you and it is you. And we used to kind of argue that actually for the, you know, that for the majority that wasn't true. But what this one study found is that for the majority, actually it's more stigmatizing.
0: Very interesting. I also, and this is a big question I've been so looking forward to diving into with you. The determination of what is, let's just call it a problem, a health, a mental health problem uh, versus a mental difference. So, for example, I have gotten into some raging arguments with some of the senior leadership of some of the biggest supposedly um dyslexia advocate organizations and training organizations they speak not all of them but many of them speak of dyslexia as a disorder they use that word and they use phrases like we will teach you to overcome your disorder to rectify to fix etc cetera, etc cetera. and so the the context the lens through which they look at in this case dyslexia is it's a mental health problem, a disorder or a disease. and what we what there is to do is fix that disease. So there are certain mental disorders that for one reason or another, medical professionals put in the we need to fix that. And there are some that are just not divergent, diverse. My brain's different than your brain. And so where do you think we are at in terms of our ability to uh, distinguish between uh, neurodiversity? That is to say, my brain's different than most people's brain. Um, There's evidence to suggest some people argue there isn't, but that people who are trans have a different brain or people who are gay. I don't know any of these things. All I'm saying is that sort of the diversity conversation has moved into the neuro world. And there is this raging argument, it appears to be, uh, between what is something that needs to be cured versus something that's a different brain that actually you could empower.
1: Yeah, I love this. And you touch on so many things, and I want to get to all of them. But first of all, I would say the difference in the mental health, or when we talk about mental illness, no one ever tells you you can be cured. No one ever tells you you can heal. So that's one big problem with it when you give someone a diagnosis. But to talk about this, we have to talk about the DSM and we have to talk about where our mental health diagnoses come from. So, you know, I didn't know this. I spent 25 years, or I spent 30, but even after 25 years in the mental health system, I had basically never heard of the DSM as it's known, also the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's not important the title, except we call it the DSM, and it's also and it's often referred to.
0: It's the Bible. It's for... referred
1: to as psychiatry's Bible. Yeah, um, they they meant that in the sense at one time people that was meant to say that psychiatrists uh, followed it to the letter. I think that's changed now in that we have this book that's intractable. We cannot revise it. We don't have data to fix it, and so that well we can get into that later, but. So the DSM, which I didn't know, is just a book. And I thought, when I thought about, okay, I received this diagnosis of bipolar disorder, I imagined people in lab coats, in a research facility, microscopes, blood, like something like that. No, actually. So what I learned is that in starting in 1952, psychiatrists, primarily white, heterosexual, cisgender men, just because that's what it was at the time.
0: Who you're calling who are you calling who white cisgender? <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, watch who you're calling. up. Um, but you know, they sat around a table and decided together, based on their opinions and their theories, what is major depressive disorder, what is anxiety disorder. And so if you open the pages of the DSM, which is just a book you will see that they've written major depressive disorder at the top of the page, and underneath will be a list of symptoms. The list symptom list didn't start till 1980, but regardless, that's what we have now. And what you need is a certain number of symptoms to you know, deserve or to receive a certain diagnosis. Context is not taken into account. Level of dysfunction is not taken into account, right? So you've got and context is not taken into account, right? So you've got these, um, you know, you've basically got just a list of symptoms, a checklist. They called it the Chinese menu of, of psychiatric disorders. But what's important about that, is to give you an idea of how arbitrary these diagnoses are, um, Robert Spitzer, who is one of the main architects of the DSM, he really gave us the biomedical model of mental illness and this idea that, yes, Major depressive disorder, it is biological, it is in you. And just wait, psychiatry will prove it next year, next year, next year, because they haven't been able to prove it, or any other disorder with the exception of dementia and rare chromosomal disorders. Um, but he was asked, why do you need five of nine symptoms to qualify for a diagnosis of major depressive disorder? And he said, it was just consensus. We went around the table, four seemed like too few, and six seemed like too many. I mean, that is the same criteria we use today to tell someone, a 15-year-old girl, that she has something called major depressive disorder, that she needs this treatment, and she will have it for the rest of her life. So that's more of what I'm, you know, where my concern is, um, because going back to your question, I'm not sure we can tell the difference between difference and disorder, illness, disease, problem, except that. DSM diagnoses are invented. I mean, like, so what do you do with essentially constructs? And that's not my term. That's Thomas Insull's uh, term. And that, you know, he called it that. Um, He was former head of the National Institute for Mental Illness, um, Mental Health. And so he, you know, certainly knows Stephen Hyman, another former NIMH director, called the DSM an absolute scientific nightmare. So again, these are not. I'm, you know, I'm not the one saying this. These are real experts in psychiatry. Some of the most prominent members of psychiatry criticizing the DSM. Alan Francis, who actually helped write the DSM, the fourth edition, has said, don't buy it, don't use it, right? I mean, so you've got people within psychiatry trying to warn the American public that these are place markers, they're placeholders, they're useful because we use them. But other than that, that's all they are. So to even put it in the conversation of, should these be considered differences or disorders? First of all, the DSM cannot, um, it can't define a level of dysfunction, as I said. So they have no measure of what someone needs to be considered dysfunctional. It used to be that you had to be quite ill, that you really couldn't live independently or you couldn't go to work. But now what I hear people saying is, it's limiting my quality of life. That was never what a mental illness was. I mean, you know, it's not limiting, my cat limits my quality of life half the time. You know, I mean, like there's, it's just too, that's too, um, that is never what was meant by mental illness or even, you know, a mental disorder at one time as seen in the DSM. So I think what the problem is, is what do we do with these diagnoses that are essentially, constructed, I think is the best word to use and not grounded in science and not provable.
0: So, so let me ask you this. So in, in, in my sort of home world of, of business and entrepreneurship in Silicon Valley, one of the powerful things that we create, uh, generally we call them frameworks. So somebody has some set of experiences, some set of data normally is involved, some learnings of one sort. Um, that person triangulates them with other people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And a theory or a, a framework or a lens or or a context, or in this case, you tell me if this is sort of similar in this situation, a construct emerges. You know, one of the most famous books written in, in the tech entrepreneur world is called Crossing the Chasm. I won't bore you with the details, but the net of it is the author, Jeffrey Moore, comes up with a new mental framework with some data and so forth and so on, and some visuals to explain how companies and categories grow and what happens. Well, that became a Bible and it is a huge contribution and it continues to be, I'm not sure if it's been 30 years, but it's been a long time. And um, it's a framework that once you have that lens, you see it and there's been data and so forth and things done with it since then. And so is, is that idea of a framework that we create That is sort of a hybrid of experience, insight, uh, non-obvious dot connecting, and so forth and so on. And somebody smart has an aha. They share that lens. They refine the lens. And then the lens gets accepted. So what's the difference? and, And in the example I just gave you with Crossing the Chasm, I believe it's been a huge contribution to the entrepreneurial world. So what's the difference between sort of, let's just call it a business framework like that, that I think most people would say is generally positive, versus a construct in the healthcare, medical, mental health world that becomes not helpful.
1: I think the the term framework could certainly be applied to the DSM. No question. You know, so we can see it both ways. And I love that you brought this up. The difference is, you know, The framework you mentioned, the sort of business framework, no one has told the public that that's biologically proven. No one has said it's the result of a chemical imbalance in their brains. (laughs) No one has let the media run wild with those two claims or told people you're going to have these disorders for the rest of your lives. So again, it was really the biomedical model that I think got us into trouble and essentially Kind of trying to, and it was, again, I think it was well intended, which is that I do believe psychiatry in general. I'm not anti psychiatry in the least. They are well meaning. There are bad apples and some very bad apples, but that's everywhere. Um, But I think they're well intended and I think they genuinely want to help people. Um, But what's happened with the DSM is it's just gone off the rails. So we started with 128 diagnoses and what they've done is expanded it. So that was in the first edition. We now have 541 different ways that you can be diagnosed with a mental disorder. So that alone Did you say
0: 541, doctor?
1: 541. And, you know, again, what's also amazing is that those numbers depend on how you count, which seems like the wrong, <laughs> like that shows how arbitrary this all is. But So some say 108 to 350, whatever you want to say, but it has grown exponentially well, why? Why, has, why are we adding more disorders when we can't even prove the existence of the ones we have? So that's my question. And that that's where a lot of destructiveness comes into play. I mean, I think, you know, what it used to be, you know, this was in the 19th century again, but when mental disorders, re, you know, diagnoses started to be put in play, they were meant for doctors to communicate with each other about a patient. So I have no trouble even with DSM diagnoses. What I want to help some people, not everyone will be troubled by it, but we are using the DSM DSM diagnoses to identify with, over-identify with in my case, and to really use them to diagnose ourselves, diagnose other people. We do, young people are doing this on social media. Um, TikTok therapists are diagnosing people, you know, I mean... It's, the DSM is very much a part of our culture, and these diagnoses are part of our culture. But originally, it was just meant for doctors about patients, never for patients to see themselves in or to try to make sense of their mental and emotional lives through a diagnosis. That's not what it's there for. Yes. So if it really was just a placeholder, and it really was something that just doctors used, I don't think it would be as detrimental right. and it wouldn't be as destructive. I mean, I think also what's in, you know what where I've been left with all this is I have a diagnosis and I don't know what it is. I could call my psychiatrist right now and ask and he would tell me, but I don't want to know because I want I'm interested in that pre-1980s when people didn't identify so much with their diagnoses and instead tried to either manage symptoms or simply process our emotions manage our thoughts and, you know, kind of monitor, monitor our behaviors if, if that's the right word for it, but.
0: Yes. Very good. Thank you for that. So I, I, I have, there's a cascading set of sort of things rattling around in my head on this and, um, you know, full disclosure, I got kicked out of school at 18 for being stupid. So, uh, and I drink a lot now that said, there's been a lot of work done, best I can tell, uh, Dr. Fay. <laughs> um, congratulations again on your PhD, um, that suggests that when human beings label other human beings, particularly when they're younger, although, of course, it can happen throughout your life, there is a unconscious decision that the human being receiving the label makes which is either to wear the label or not wear the label. Maybe there's some in between, but just to keep it simple. And there's been lots of research, as you know, I'm sure better than me that suggests that if you take a group of quote unquote average student children and you tell teachers they're gifted, they treat them as gifted and their uh, outcomes go up. You take the exact same group, you do the opposite, tell them they're not gifted and their grades suck and they have challenges and behavior problems and the like. So, so we, what we do know is that, The labels, the languaging that we use uh, is very powerful. And when somebody else says, Oh, hey, Sarah, you're fucking smart. And you decide to wear that label, that can mean one thing for, because the label then, the choice that gets made is Am I going to accept that label as part of my identity? And if I accept it as part of my identity, then it becomes how I conduct myself and that label can uh, be part of my life design. It's how I relate to myself. And I think, well, if I'm a dumb person, I'm now going to design a life with an interpretation of myself that I'm dumb or that I'm smart in this example. And so to your point, self-fulfilling prophecy. And so this leads me to a big question, which is if I'm a person that is feeling some kind of a difference, And beginning to think that maybe that difference is detrimental, that there's something, you know, I'm suicidal. Uh, I have friends who are in the therapy business and they say everybody right now is mental Uh, or maybe you're not supposed to use that word anymore, but everybody right now, you know, everybody walks in and says, I'm upset. I have anxiety. I'm freaked out. And what my therapist friends say to me is, is, well, yes, you're in the world, in the modern world. And if, if COVID didn't do it, then World War III will do it and the political situation will do it, and, and, and on the macro side. So, anyway, long story longer, I make a choice to wear that label or not. And I make a choice to embed it in my self relationship with self uh, and project it forward into my life or not. So, if I was a person experiencing something, that was causing me concern about my mental health. And I said, you know what? I need to talk to somebody, AKA, maybe I need somebody to diagnose me or not diagnose me. I need to talk to a professional and tell me what the fuck's going on. If I was a young person, what would you tell me? If I was the parent of a young person? If I was the loved one of any aged person expressing these things? So what do you want the world uh, doctor to know about, I'm at a place, I make this decision, I'm now gonna interact with the healthcare system. Now what?
1: So um, it's a great question. And I think, first of all, if anyone is contemplating suicide at any time, you are in crisis and you need to go someplace that you're gonna be safe. Typically, that will mean. Either calling 911, which can be problematic, but we're going to start having 988, which will be the suicide crisis hotline. We'll have 988 available, um, I believe, in July, if I'm not mistaken. But if anyone listening is contemplating suicide, that is a totally different thing. Um, psychosis as well. That is an emergency. I have been suicidal and ended up in the emergency room. It is not fun, it is not ideal. Um, and I don't, rec- you know, I, I, I I can't say that I, you have to go there. You have to be safe, as did I. And it's going to suck. And so just and, letting people know that. And Sarah, uh, did not you feel- I'm trying to say that.
0: Did you feel like the, yeah. uh, how many, remind me, how many times did it happen for you?
1: Um, I was in the emergency room once and then in other situations of sort of being taken to, I guess it was twice, yeah. But twice. one, I was taken directly to the psychiatric.
0: And what what ward. is what is the sort of, Trigger that says to you, I need to go somewhere. I can't just call my best friend or, you know, my sister or something like that and, you know, or go for a long walk with a friend and talk. When do I know I got to go to a a hospital because uh, I'm in that level of crisis?
1: And, you know, I'm not a mental health professional and I'm not a doctor, so I just want to put that out there. But I will say what I was told during and what worked for me in my experience, which was that if there is a plan in place, that is an emergency situation. So it isn't actually abnormal to, to think about suicide. I mean, it's not ideal, probably, because it's very disturbing. But that does happen. And that happens to people with absolutely no mental health conditions or problems. Um, It's just some, our brain gives us a lot of thoughts and that's just one of them. But the moment there's a plan, then, you know, it's considered a crisis situation and you do need to just get somewhere that's safe. Um, That may mean going to someone, you know, that, you know, I mean, the, the problem with calling 911 for some people, especially those with serious mental illness and especially those who might be violent at the time is that can be, those aren't necessarily the best trained people to arrive on that scene. And people are really advocating to change that so that when you have, you know, a situation and this is dealing with something else, but this is someone let's say with psychosis who is being violent um, that then calling the police who are really trained to use force against force, which, you know, that's just what they're trained to do. You have a social worker there with, or you have a doctor there with that can best facilitate. Um But again, you know, just, just, I just wanted to mention that because it's so important to distinguish mental health problems. Aren't all the same. We like to say that we're all a little mentally ill, you know, ha ha ha. It's simply not true. You know, we have people in real crisis right now. And, and those are people often with what's called serious mental illness or SMI. And then there's any mental illness, AMI and serious mental illness really affects a very small percentage of the population. And that's the percentage of the population that we aren't getting care to. Those are people with schizophrenia, with schizoaffective disorder, with bipolar disorder, and with depression, with suicidality. And those are often the people ending up on the streets and in jails. You know, we aren't getting those people the care we need. So I just want to distinguish between that and any mental illness, which is sort of what Freud called neurosis, which is anxiety, depression without suicidality, um, Obsessive compulsive disorder, any anything along those lines, which are create great psychic and emotional suffering. I'm not belittling that, but they're just different. But you asked what I would suggest, you know, to let's say someone whose child is going through something, um, you know, that isn't a crisis situation necessarily. But you know, one thing that I do know, and again, I'm not a mental health professional, that I can say is that and no one told me this, get a second opinion, (laughs) get a second opinion. I mean, I don't know why I never heard that in 25 years, but I didn't. And I also know that's a luxury. I've been without health insurance. I've, you know, not received, you know, treatment or not been able to get in to see a psychiatrist. I've had that experience as well. So, but one thing I can say is we have general practitioners. So GPs, pediatricians, family doctors, They are doing most of the diagnosing and prescribing right now. Um, And that's, quote unquote, a good thing in the sense that we want to give everyone access to care. The problem with the situation that we have now, they're writing 80% of all antidepressant prescriptions. They're writing 50% of all antipsychotic prescriptions to children. They have, for the most part, about 32 hours of psychiatric training, and that's it. And again, that may not be too problematic, except that in a University of Michigan study from 2019, when they asked general practitioners how confident they felt giving a diagnosis, the majority said, very confident. (laughs) So again, we've got like hubris mixed with a bad, you know, a flawed situation. And so what I would say is, and I didn't know this either, you can request that your pediatrician or your GP, if they give you They give your five-year-old the diagnosis of bipolar disorder or major depression. You can say, will you consult with a psychiatrist and let us know what they say? And again, I didn't know that and I wish I had. So again, just that second opinion, you know, diagnoses are what we have to to work with. That's what we've got and we have to make the best of it. But the way to really make them work is to put them under a little bit of scrutiny with professional help.
0: Yes. Thank you for that. So get a second opinion. Makes a ton of sense. Doctors will tell you that for virtually anything of consequence, uh, I think. You know how much time I spent in medical school. The other interesting thing is sort of with a physical illness. So I'm somebody who's broken a bunch of things. I'm currently sitting here with broken ribs. And when you break your ribs, the experience you have, I think, if mine is anywhere near normal, is, oh, fuck, I broke my ribs. That sucks. Sneezing sucks. Coughing sucks. Coughing sucks. Uh, There's nothing you can do about this but take Tylenol. If you tape them, it's actually dumb because that causes more. Anyway, there's nothing you can do with broken ribs. You just sort of live through them and they heal and Bob's your uncle. Now, here's what doesn't happen for most people when they get a broken bone. They don't go, oh, who I am equals broken ribs. However, when you're, in my case, 21, And they say to you, you have um, ADHD and you're dyslexic. What does happen is you go who I am equals those diagnoses," as opposed to who I am is myself and I have some fucked up ribs. And so what I think I hear part of you saying in your work, but I want to be I want to hear it from you is drawing that sort of um, distinction for people.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it, I, again, the broken bone analogy and not making a broken bone, your identity, you don't live with that broken rib for the rest of your life necessarily. Um, is such a great way of putting it in. The thing is that on top of that, if we use the broken bone analogy and it's where my kind of metaphor falls apart a little bit is that we can't actually even prove you have a broken rib. So I can't show anyone an x-ray. No doctor couldn't show, you know, no doctor could show me, here's a scan that shows that you have bipolar disorder. You'll see on these parts of the brain that this is lit up or that is lit up. We don't have that. There's no blood test. We like to liken, you know, depression to diabetes. They're nothing like each other. No one can give me a blood test and confirm that I have anxiety disorder. Yet, if I sorry, urinate frequently and get, you know, get fatigued or get uh, lightheaded from hunger and whatever else it is. And I have all the symptoms of diabetes. I can go to a doctor. He can give me a blood test and say, you don't have diabetes. But if I walk into a psychiatrist's office or a GP's office and I say my heart races, I'm having trouble sleeping, I worry constantly, I'm losing my job, he'll say, you have anxiety disorder. And there's nothing we can do to prove it. So if I meet all the requirements for anxiety disorder... I'll get that diagnosis. But I think the other issue too, is that we're going straight to diagnoses and then we're stopping at diagnoses. Like one thing that really shocked me, and this is what I'm writing the sequel to pathological right now. And it's what my new book is about. And I'm just loving writing it because we're, I was never told I could heal. Healing was never a part of the conversation. It was permanent. Every single diagnosis, ADHD, OCD, Depression, anxiety, certainly bipolar disorder—I would have them for the rest of my life. And so, what we're doing now, it seems to me, many of us, not everybody, we immediately go for the diagnosis. We attach the diagnosis to ourselves, for better or worse. Some people find relief and empowerment. Some people find limitation. And then that's it. No one's talking about healing. No one's really talking. I mean, not no one. There are very. There's. A, I'm reading now and researching about people who are talking about healing. But very few people are talking about that. And so why are we starting and stopping with diagnoses? That's that's my question.
0: Fascinating. And I, I guess maybe that answers the question that has been driving me crazy for the vast majority of my adult life, which is why aren't we doing some real work, some real thinking, some real research into the point we were on earlier, which is, distinguishing between what is a a situation that clearly requires uh care some of them are obvious if you're feeling suicidal that would seem obvious to me right Uh, you talk about in your book and i've heard you talk about in other forums you you are unable to function yes sarah yeah Yeah. if you can't get out of bed and you're in your 40s and your mommy needs to take care of you that's very different than like i'm not happy all the time and maybe i should ask my doctor for a happy pill right
1: Well, and I should say, you know, I think everyone's different too, in the sense that I also am very high energy. So I didn't spend all day in bed, but I could not take care of myself in the sense of I had I could only work part-time, I couldn't afford to pay my rent, you know, those sorts of things in terms of dysfunction. And then also I was suicidal for those five years. I mean, my poor mother spent five years on suicide watch and it really broke her down as well. And that's important to mention too, because the families really have it the hardest. I was so lucky to have a family. I was so lucky that they didn't give up on me when I pushed them away and distanced myself and isolated. And I just want to applaud all the families and people who are going through this and thank them for their work too. Even if you need boundaries, even if you need distance, it's it's really like anything you do for someone makes a difference. Um, but I, I do think there's a huge difference. I think we're a bit obsessed with happiness in our culture. <laughs> I'm not sure it should be the goal. I mean, one thing that really helped me and, and really saved me was learning about psychiatric uh, evolutionary psychiatry and just what our brains are actually designed to do and what they aren't designed to do. So our brains are designed to keep us alive. End of story. That's <laughs> all it's designed to do. And it is just out there looking for danger. That is it. It's trying to predict where danger is, and boom. And once I learned that, I thought, wow, okay, that makes total sense why I am constantly on the lookout for danger when I'm opening my email. You know, I mean, it's not that big of a deal. Um, but it, happiness doesn't come into the equation, and it's only out to propagate our genes, and there are all these other aspects of it. And and I think that's very that was very freeing for me um, in the sense that I no longer measure, okay, something is wrong because I'm not happy. What is happiness? We don't even really know what emotions are other than vibrations in our bodies, but what constitutes happiness for one people person as opposed to another? So yeah, I think that what are we measuring our levels of dysfunction against? What are we saying, yes, this needs, you know, And and don't forget, I mean, Care can mean a lot of different things. It doesn't always mean treatment. It can mean giving something, a situation, time to play out. Grieving is a good example of that. I mean, they have shown that 50% of the time, time will heal most wounds emotionally and mentally. So giving something time, letting it play out, and taking care of yourself while you're doing that, that's a kind of treatment, right? You might not see a mental health professional, but that's something. For one person, it will be medication. For another person, it will be meditation. For me, you know, it was, I tried every form of meditation, Chinese herbs that tasted like death. I mean, I did it all, (laughs) yoga, everything, and it didn't work. And I did end up in the kind of medication cycle. What we do know is that your body builds up a a dependence on medication, psychotropic drugs. And so I will likely be on them for the rest of my life. I don't know if I'm dependent on them or that I need them. I've tried to go off them and almost died and I will never try again. I shouldn't say never, but it is very unlikely I would risk that again. But so, you know, healing is going to look different for everybody, but so is treatment. And I think we have to, the problem with going for the diagnosis first is that will often lead to psychotropic drugs. I mean, as I say in my book, if you go to a lemonade stand and say you're thirsty, they're going to give you lemonade. If you go to a psychiatrist and say you're depressed, he's going to give you an antidepressant, you, right. know, you know, or a mood stabilizer or whatever. It's why I, I like to go to craft job.
0: breweries because they got a lot of craft beer there and they give them to me. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, that's their job. Right. I mean, we, you know, again, I, I don't fault psychiatry, really. You know, we have this very flawed manual that they're using. And then, you know, even to give them credit, we don't know anything about the brain so to say, you know, relatively speaking, it's this very complex thing with billions of neurons and we're expecting them to understand. And then they have to reckon with the mind. What is even the mind? You know, there's a mind and a brain or, you know, it depends if you believe that, but I mean, I think they have a very hard job is all I'm trying to say.
0: Yeah. And I think to your point, Sarah, I think I didn't know the uh, lack of knowledge we have about the brain uh unfortunately one of the people i love the most in the world um a couple years ago suffered a horrible traumatic brain injury and uh subsequently succumbed to his injuries and um it was unbelievable father of three like it was just everything it's just one of the greatest guys you could ever meet anyway as that was playing out it turned out a friend of his uh had a close relationship with a gal who was one of the most senior neurologists at ucsf and so she was kind she's sort of semi-retired she was kind enough to kind of give us that second opinion and it was happening during covid so we couldn't go see and we couldn't even talk to the doctors and you know it was just like a complete fuck show anyway you sort of realize in a situation like that like when you have a tbi all they do they put you on some drugs to calm your ass down they cut a hole in your head And they pray that the swelling doesn't kill you or damage too much of your brain. Like, so when your brain is injured, what I learned is we actually, there's nothing we can do. We don't fucking know what to do. That's where we're at. Um, And to your point, mind and brain, this is, you know, I believe in a higher power. And part of the reason I believe in a higher power is because I know that what makes you and I, you and I isn't in our body. And I know that the smartest scientists and doctors in the world, they can tell you what part of your brain executes a command for me to wave my hand as I'm talking to you. But nobody in the world can tell you where that thought comes from. And nobody can tell you. Like, if I ask a simple question, where's Sarah? Well, I know where the hunk of meat where Sarah lives is. But where's Sarah? nobody can actually answer that question. Yeah. And so it's a shocking thing as we sort of delve into some of this stuff when we realize, wow, we don't know shit about shit.
1: (laughs) And, and, you know, again, that would be fine if the public knew what psychiatry knows, which is that we don't really know a lot and we're doing our best. Um, and, and the problem is that, you know, 80% of, you know, Americans, according to one study still believe that Mental illness is caused by a chemical imbalance. I mean, that was that was a theory that was debunked twenty years ago. It was always just a hypothesis. It's now referred to by many as the chemical imbalance myth. So it's but we hear it all the time. I mean,
0: I uh, you know until I read your work, I thought that was a thing. Yeah, how the hell would I know?
1: I thought so too, and I was you know I was around it in it. It's complete bullshit. There's no
0: such thing, right?
1: Right. I mean, what they say, that doesn't mean that the brain isn't involved in mental illness, but the idea that you have somehow depleted you know, uh, levels of serotonin or dopamine, it was actually originally about dopamine and then they switched it to serotonin. That idea, they have found no consistency that people with depression have lower levels or higher levels of anything. Um, same with schizophrenia, same with all of that. That's just never come to fruition. And as Nasir Gamey, who's a psychiatrist at Tufts, told me it's scientifically meaningless. He's just won't even talk about it. You know, he's just like, that is pointless. So
0: so maybe let me just see if I can put a fine point on it. If let's say I was having a heart problem and a, a valve wasn't functioning properly, to the best of my ignorant knowledge, we know how to diagnose that. We know how to isolate specifically what it is there are clear treatments for it depending on what level of severity it is and how old i am and other blah 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 blah, blah. and there's a whole bunch of things we can do include putting a, a, a new valve in there that is absolutely it's not like i have a serotonin valve in my head that is sort of not doing what it's supposed to and therefore i'm you know, my serotonin levels are down 20% because the flow isn't working because that, that whole idea that there's a physical problem that creates a quote chemical imbalance has been debunked.
1: Yes. That idea that you have depleted levels of some, you know, neurotransmitter like serotonin or dopamine. Now that's, again, that's not to say that the brain isn't involved. Um, two things. One is that they essentially now think of it more, or the metaphor they're using now is that of a circuit board. They think of that as that's sort of one of the kind of ways they're trying to think about the brain in psychiatry. But also, you know, the chemical imbalance theory, as it was called, was very, very, very convenient for pharmaceutical companies. Because if there was run, one thing wrong that's causing your disorder, then they have the pill for it. And so that was, uh, that's also why it has continued to perpetuate. I mean, I don't, I, I mean, I've read enough to know that psychiatrists, I was told by my GPs that I had a chemical imbalance. I was never actually told by a psychiatrist. I have spoken to people who say that they were, um, but I, I. you would have to, any psychiatrist worth his, her, their salt would absolutely know that there's no such thing as a chemical imbalance. I would think, but Interesting. I haven't talked and, to all
0: of them. And uh, maybe we can go here. So if I'm, ch- if my notes are right, you said um, uh, originally um, there were 128 diagnoses, and now there are 541.
1: And that includes subtypes and sure. you know, the, basically there are 541 ways in to the be, current dsm receive a diagnosis yeah
0: yeah and so there's this thing we teach entrepreneurs and category designers if you want to create a new category what creates a category is um generally a new problem either an existing problem reimagined in some way or a whole new problem that we didn't know that we had And one of the biggest ahas is a very hard thing to educate, particularly technology entrepreneurs, which is where I've lived my professional life. It's very hard for them to understand, hey, uh, Jimmy, nobody buys a solution until they have a problem. And so one of the things we train people in is how to market the problem. Well, in this case. One could say that that strategy is somewhat nefarious in that nobody's going to buy Ritalin unless their kid has ADHD. And when I was a kid, ADHD was not a category, was not a diagnosis. And so because it wasn't a problem, there was no solution. And what you could argue, and I'm bouncing, I'm saying all this like a question, Sarah, is that what's happened here? is the pharmaceutical industry has created 541 new problems so they can sell 541 new solutions. Uh, Is that overly, go ahead.
1: It's, you know, again, pharmaceutical company representatives are not sitting at the table as the DSM is being drafted. So that, you know, that isn't true. At the same time, the last edition of the DSM, 70% of its authors had ties to big pharma. Pharma funds research and psychiatric research. So to say there's no crossover, that's just, you know, influence there. There just is. Um, What's interesting is I was on NPR with uh, Paul Applebaum, who's chair of the DSM steering committee currently. And, you know, a very smart man, I think a very upright man. I have great respect for him. But they uh, the interviewer asked him, well, why don't they just make it so that you can to be to serve as one of the authors um, on the DSM, you can't have any ties to Big Pharma? And he said kind of said like then we wouldn't have anyone good. <laughs> it backfired a little. Like, I think he meant it he meant it well, but it kind of was like, oh okay, the, everybody's got ties. Um,
0: and by the way, I don't I necessarily think-, think that's nefarious and by the way, you're talking to somebody who is on, Uh, life-saving drugs. And I'm grateful for them because without them, I probably wouldn't be here. Or if I was, I'd be in uh, some kind of a mess. So I'm not one of these, oh, the drug companies are always evil people. I agree. It happens.
1: Yeah. I'm on medication. I love my medication. Pill shaming does nothing for anyone. And it's absolutely been life-saving for me as well the nefarious part of it is that there is actually something called disease awareness campaigns that pharmaceutical companies have done. They're also called market the diagnosis campaigns. And these are really sinister, but as a business person, as an entrepreneur, you will really, it is also brilliant. I mean, I hate to say it. it's, It's, it's evil and brilliant, but what they did was, so GlaxoSmithKline, had the drug Paxil. It's an antidepressant and can also be marketed as an anti-anxiety medication. Well, this was, you know, after the 1980s, 1990s, Prozac was, had boomed, had made billions and had really stolen Paxil's thunder. So Paxil had no, no um, kind of traction as an antidepressant. And they said, we've got to figure out something else to treat this for. We've got to find a new market. And so they flipped through the pages. They got you know um, FDA approval for it as an anti anxiety medication. Flipped through the pages of the DSM, found an obscure little diagnosis called generalized anxiety disorder, which is now the most frequently diagnosed uh, you know disorder from the DSM. And th- what they did though is they didn't market Paxil for it they just marketed generalized anxiety disorder. And the way they did that was they formed fake patient advocacy groups to promote it. They paid doctors to go on TV and say, people have this, but they don't know they have it and people are suffering. And I mean, generalized anxiety disorder, it's very hard not to identify with that diagnosis, especially, you know, the way people are talking today. I mean, it's it's like, hey,
0: I'm freaked out because I just uh, watched my favorite news show or read my favorite news website and I'm losing my mind and I don't know how to cope. That's kind of all of us, isn't it?
1: (laughs) I mean, and, and this is, again, not to minimize, I have terrible panic attacks and crippling anxiety, and it sucks. So I'm not, you know, and I'm not at all trying to diminish how harrowing a panic attack is. Absolutely. And it is every time I get it, which I don't understand, because I get them a lot. You'd think I'd wake up to it, but I'm not. Um, but the disease awareness campaign, the uh, GlaxoSmithKline, actually, though other companies have done this, I'm not just pinpointing, you know, pointing the finger at them, but they also did it with social anxiety disorder and Paxil. And what was fascinating is they actually had advertisements that said, imagine being allergic to people. And there was a picture of a man like at a table alone. (laughs) But when you think about, you know, the, the pandemic has never been a better advertisement for social anxiety disorder. I mean, we spent two years for the most part in isolation, in quarantine, and especially young people. I mean, to spend two years in your bedroom, to come out of that without feelings of depression and anxiety seems to me like it would be abnormal yes you know it seems like a very logical reaction to what we've been through yes which doesn't mean you don't get treatment or help
0: yes of course um right (laughs) so if i'm somebody who's experiencing um some of this stuff on the whole spectrum whether it's you know suicidal at the moment or anxiety or whatever, all the shit that you've been diagnosed and misdiagnosed and all the other shit sort of tangentially associated with it. Uh, you now, if I understand kind of, you know, because your, your book is very personal as well, of course, which is a big, big part of what makes it so powerful. Um, you've been through this. And so if I was at the beginning of it, I think part of why you've written this stuff is so that I don't have to go through all the shit you went through. Exactly. And so what are the big sort of learnings that you want the world to understand so that your suffering in this regard is the last of this kind? There might be new suffering, but we won't, if I'm in a similar situation, I don't have to suffer as much as of the things that you had to suffer as a result of your work.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's exactly why I wrote the book. And it is, you know, people say it's a page turner turner because of my story, but I really tried to give everyone all the information I wish I'd known when I went through this. I also wrote it for families so that they don't have to suffer the way my family suffered. My family just didn't know what to do. They knew as little about this stuff as I did. And, And that's a terrible position for any of us to be in. So I think, you know, one thing again is that, you know, there are two steps to healing and one is to get help. Again, that might be with a mental health professional. It might not be. I mean, they do find um, studies have shown that obsessive compulsive disorder in children goes away with time. So who knows? And again, I, you know, that's from a study and you would have to consult a physician about that or a, psych- a psychiatrist. Um, but that the first step is getting help, whatever that looks like. And the second step is knowing the limitations of the diagnoses we receive in the sense that they are simply designations that your doctor is using to try to get you the best treatment. That's all they are. They are for doctors to use. And if you choose to identify with it or find relief in it or be empowered by it, that's great. You know, more power to you. Um, So I think that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is stop reading the internet (laughs) immediately. Do not Pasco, do not like, you know, that just has to, I, if I had known, I, I received so much misinformation from the internet and, and to really, you know, this isn't to say that misinformation doesn't come from, you know, clinicians and, and mental health professionals, but to, to really look to them, they have far more training than any of us do. Um, and to ask them if you can, if you have that. What's amazing now is there's so much teletherapy going on that we do have more access to people than we ever used to. So maybe taking advantage of that as well, if that feels right. Um, yeah, the other one, just before you but, leave
0: that one, Sarah. Yeah. Um. So I think it's one thing to say to people, stop reading the internet. Of course, we're not going to.
1: <laughs> I know.
0: And so, so, you know, the thing that I wonder about is it appears to me today that many people don't sort of do any homework on the source of what's being said. So people take medical advice from Kim Kardashian and Joe Rogan. Right. And it's like, what, 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 what? And so if on the other hand, I know there are some incredible um, psychiatrists who do amazing things on the internet. There's amazing therapists, some of whom, We've had on in the past who, who contribute incredibly in the digital world. Uh, But there's this weird thing about how, just like in the political world, there's very little thinking that happens. What most people call thinking is the mental retweeting of something I already agree with and like. And so I wonder, and we recently had on the legendary Roger Martin uh, and Roger explained how there's two kinds of thinking, reflexive and reflective Mm. and the confusing of the two is really uh, this is now me talking a huge problem today and so with all that said how do i vet information whether it's from the actual doc or some other trained medical professional i'm sitting in a room with somebody with a white coat or i found some you know something on youtube that for some reason or another seems to speak to me and you know the thing of course when we're having mental Health issues. We're vulnerable, right? We're susceptible. We are. We're. We're in either a mini or a maxi crisis of some sort, and we're trying to deal with a something. And so, a friendly face with a kind word can feel very helpful. But at the same time, if that kind word and friendly face is an absolute fucking moron who thinks the world is flat, we're probably in a lot of trouble. And so, how do I sort of develop a lens for evaluating? what's being presented to me and the person doing the presenting?
1: I wish I had all the answers to that. It it is really difficult. And I will say that there are over 500 citations in Pathological because I didn't want people to think I was just throwing information at them or throwing a theory at them without them being able to look at the source and where I got it from. And the majority are peer-reviewed journals and also um, academic sources. The problem is what I found is here I'm on... Nature, or one of the really legit, not that there are very many illegitimate, but um, peer reviewed journals. There aren't that many illegitimate ones. But um, And then you have to scroll to the bottom to see conflicts of interest. And I didn't, you know, so you have to find out who the author's conflicts of interest are. You know, are they pushing for antidepressant use for depression? And their conflicts of interest are with Eli Lilly, who makes Prozac. You know, then you kind of are going to take this very, and, but that's so commonplace. So this is all just to say, you know, you're right. I kind of just said, don't get it off the internet, but it's even tricky when you're going to very difficult to read scientific articles and and journals, um, and peer reviewed articles to try to get your information when it comes to, um, you know, when I finally, and I had never done this before, but when I finally was, um, searching for a psychiatrist, And I was, I learned that you should interview them. This was something I never knew you should do. And I went around and I did ask some questions like, you know, how comfortable are you prescribing um, medication? Which medications do you tend to prescribe the most? Because sometimes people will have a go-to. How comfortable are you diagnosing people? Um, You know, are you comfortable waiting to give a diagnosis, you know, getting to know me, like whatever it might be. So there are questions that you can ask the mental health professional or clinician that you're seeing. I mean, one other issue that this, you know, is somewhat related, but that, you know, now you go see your GP and they ask you very leading questions about whether or not you're anxious or depressed. (laughs) And so, or you go to the emergency room. I mean, if you were to say, are you anxious? most of us would say, yeah, yeah, I am. You know, like, are you depressed? Probably. I don't know. You know, I mean, like, but in so we, we lead the question, you know, instead of asking, how are you feeling? You know, what is going on in your life? And then trying to get from there, what kinds of things actually naturally come up for you? Um, But again, that that's a little bit tangential. I mean, I wish I had better answers in terms of how to vet, I really do. And I think it is very hard because you have very qualified people out there, very qualified and very unqualified people
0: out there. There's an epidemiologist, uh, a gal, I believe she's in San Diego. And when the uh, when the pandemic broke out, if I remember her story correctly, uh, one of the more senior folks on the faculty, because it's a university hospital she's, she's with, sort of said, hey, you're very good at kind of communicating and putting data in front of people in a way that's highly consumable, et cetera, et cetera. Would you mind writing uh, kind of a, a weekly update for the broader team here about what's going on? Anyway, that ended up becoming a substack and it's one of the top substacks. And I've subscribed to her ever since I heard about her. I'm just blanking on her name. But she's Oh, that would be great. Yeah, and and what's occurred to me, I think she calls herself your neighborhood or your local epidemiologist. But the interesting thing about kind of her approach is it's very clear a she fucking knows what she's talking about b she shares with you how she gets into wherever she's kind of whatever she's kind of presenting so there's a transparency around how i got to this anyway long story longer the net of it is i wonder if she is emblematic of the healthcare provider of the future who has to be a radically transparent Particularly, you know, when something is evolving like this, it's going to change. Do we, don't we wear masks? Do we do this? Do we need a booster? And it's sort of not okay just to be a legendary epidemiologist. You have to be a legendary communicator. And and she's become, you know, almost an internet celebrity because she's so good at it. And so I, I assume there are those people in the mental health world.
1: Yeah, there's, there is a, um, I think Thomas Insel is one of those people. Um, I definitely would recommend he just started, he actually took the proceeds from his new book and donated it or used it to start a nonprofit. And the website is called Mindsight News and it's just started, but they're trying to be a kind of, you know, be that responsible, um, resource for people in some ways. It's not, um, it's not a go-to in the sense of it's, it's more blogs, you know, it's blog posts. So you can't just look up anxiety and get, get information about it. Um, But one thing you brought up for me was that uh, anything you read on the internet and you see the hyperlinks, see where they're hyperlinking. And if they're hyperlinking to other unreputable (laughs) news sources or sources, there's a problem. So unless they're eventually going to a reputable source then I would take it with a grain of salt.
0: Yes, yes. And one of the things as a side note we try to do with our writing is always show you how we got to it. If it's some kind of a conclusion, we share with you how we got to that place. We don't just sort of say, ta-da, this is the place. And of course we use um, data and frameworks and like, I just looked her up. Her name is Caitlin Jetelina. J E T E L I N. And her substack is called your local epidemiologist. And she is an angel. And so, you know, to our conversation earlier on podcast, I think it's true for newsletters and YouTube channels. And today, what we broadly call creators, there are some docs. uh, There are professors who have become maybe somewhat accidental creators over time. And, they can really synthesize things for us in a way that is incredibly powerful. And this uh, direct-to-creator model where we can subscribe to uh, her uh, newsletter is a very powerful way to kind of sidecar high-value information to what our, you know, our doctors are telling us. And so I guess what you're saying is sort of look into their background, look at who they're citing, uh, et cetera, et cetera, to decide – You know do we think dr oz is credible or not
1: and the other thing you brought up was um her teaching at a university hospital and i or being connected to one when you're looking for someone you know especially a psychiatrist or even a gp that can be a great thing too um to definitely have someone who's attached to this isn't always the case but someone who's attached to a university hospital
0: yes Now, uh, and I know you've been incredibly generous with your time. I deeply appreciate it. Uh, If maybe I could just touch a little bit on the personal. So, of course, you and I just met. My experience of you in our conversation today is completely different than any of the episodes and situations of severe crisis in your book. And seeing you today, I mean, it's almost unfathomable to imagine that you were a person who couldn't get out of bed and was ineffectual and was all of the things that you describe. And so, first of all, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> and second of all, <laughs> I mean, maybe a crazy guess. question, but you know, how is it you're so fucking awesome and you seem so, f- <laughs> I understand the things still, you know, the monsters that lurk still lurk, but um, there's really no evidence of it in our conversation. <laughs> how how is for,
1: that? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going to, you might hear some noise and me sounding a little distant just because my Mac is going to go to sleep if I don't plug it into power. So, um, but uh, this is just to say that I basically, you know, I healed and I allowed myself to heal through many, many different modes and it took a long time. Um, sorry, I'm just going to redo this. So the gist of all this is as I seem very not together, as I'm putting this all done. Um, But, you know, I think a lot of it was stopping identifying with my diagnosis. That was part of it. But also just that I allowed myself to heal, as I said, but also I have a lot of humor in my life that I did not have for decades. And that has been really amazing to get back. And I just remember the day that I noticed it coming back and we were at lunch. I'm cl- I wasn't close to my father for a long time and we're very close now. And we go to lunch every week. We were at lunch and he was trying to figure out his cell phone. He was trying to download an app and he couldn't. And um, uh, he looked at me and he said, Apple must only hire young people who hate their grandparents. (laughs) I thought it was so hilarious. (laughs) And I was like, exactly. And I just remember laughing so genuinely. And I hadn't, it's not that I hadn't laughed, but I do a lot of laughing. Um, Hmm. That's definitely a part of it. And that sounds so trite, but it really does make a difference in terms of trying not to There's a lot of drama in life Mm -hmm. and and not creating it as well.
0: Do you uh, just maybe as a side note on that, do you consume uh, comedy, whether it's stand up comedy or funny movies or sketches or comedy of any kind?
1: I don't do it a, as much as I probably should. I tend to actually watch thrillers, which is very weird, and read thrillers, um, mm. but which is kind of odd given my kind of sensitive nature. Yeah. <laughs> that's clearly murdering in on in a book is okay. Um, but yeah, no, I don't really as much as I probably should.
0: Interesting. But I laugh
1: with myself. And, and I think the other thing, you know, that's really helped is um, – to be honest, I don't change my medication anymore. So before it used to be that, no ma- you know, if something happened, like I had a panic attack, this was last week, immediately I would have said, oh, this is because of my diagnosis. And I would go see my psychiatrist and most likely we would tinker with the, you know, dosages or maybe try a new drug. And that just opened up a whole new can of worms. And, and so I just would, I really now it would have, once I hit a baseline and like, okay, this is okay. We stay here. That's just what we do.
0: And we manage off that. Well, you you, you seem incredible. And um, you certainly have written a legendary book. I could talk to you forever, but I want to be respectful of your time. Um, Sarah, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap?
1: Um, Nothing that comes to mind. Just thank you so much for having me. I could talk to you all day as well. So (laughs) thank you.
0: Thank you very much, and you 're welcome back anytime.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: Well, there she is, the legendary Sarah Fe, uh, man, oh man. What an incredible piece of work, What an inspiring uh, human being, and I deeply recommend her new book it 's called "Pathological: The True Story of Six uh, Misdiagnosis and it 's a stunner Now, if you appreciate this podcast, please show your appreciation by sharing it with your friends. Uh, this episode, especially anybody who's uh, grappling with their own mental health or the mental health of somebody they love, which pretty much fucking everybody um, will appreciate this episode. Uh, so regardless of which odd cast player you're listening to us on, whether it's Apple or Spotify or or Stitcher or many of the other Google podcasts, there's a share feature. And if you hit that button right now. You can send it to the people that you love. And there's also a share feature on social media. Please know we deeply appreciate your social media thoughts and shares. I also want to tell you, we have an upcoming list of guests that is amazing. So in no particular order, coming soon, Xander Rose, who's the head of an outfit, an organization called the Long Now Foundation, and you may have heard of them because this is the organization that is building the 10,000-year clock that is being funded by Jeff Bezos. And we dig into that project and why it matters and much more about thinking long-term. And during our conversation, Xander asked me a question that stopped me in my tracks. And I ask you to think about this question because I've thought about it nonstop since he said it. Are we being good ancestors? So look for Xander Rose coming up soon. Also coming up soon, Chris Duffin. Chris is an extraordinary human being. He's a world record breaking power lifter. As a matter of fact, he's the only person he holds the world record in a uh, thousand pound deadlifts and squats, an amount of weight and an amount of reps that would crush most people. He's an extraordinary man and making his story even more incredible. Uh, Chris Duffin grew up homeless, being radically malnourished, and having to scrounge for food as a child. And now he is. Uh, What he is and his story illuminates the power of the human spirit. Another episode coming up very soon is Sequoia Capital partner Michelle Bailey. As you may know, Sequoia Capital is really one of the uh, founding venture capital firms uh, in Silicon Valley. And Michelle specializes in crypto and a few other things. And so we go deep on what is going on in the crypto world right now, both the currencies startups, the ecosystem, et cetera. And what is the legendary Sequoia advising their entrepreneurs to do to navigate this downturn and a whole lot more. So look for Michelle Bailey from Sequoia capital coming up soon. And to make sure that you don't miss a single episode, follow, follow your different right now on your odd player of choice. All right. We would like to thank, thank you. Thanks for hanging out. We deeply appreciate it around here. My friends at One Life Fully Lived.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out. The number one life dot My friends at Bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant. If you need a, an assistant who is going to do, do a great job for you and never get near you, go to Bottleneck.org. Online. My friends at Autranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out ATRE.net and ask them about their rapid relaunch program. That's Autre.net. Don't forget to go to PELA, P E L A, Earth, and place your order for LOMI today. Uh, we love ours around here. Ours is working all the time. We're putting magic LOMI dirt in our garden uh, on a daily basis. And uh, I don't know. I think, I think shit grows better with Lomi. That's just <laughs> my experience. I'm very excited about this technology. I think you will be, too. Check out Pela, P-E-L-A dot earth, and pick up your Lomi, L-O-M-I, today. All right. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and it contains content known to the state of California. To cause radically different thinking. All rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. And if you're in the Los Angeles area and you need a legendary podcast studio, or you need a legendary studio to record something else, Jason's just opening up a brand new studio now. So check out Jason Dot fyi that's Jason.fyi if you're looking for a legendary studio in los angeles sarah knox and jamie J do uh, technical execution around here and they build lockhead.com show notes by gm simon and the Bobus brothers ex and rj do our web development and cedric Bureau does our web design our law firm is weed and jack and our accounts are three bounce sheets to the wind we record these odd casts on squadcast fm leonard cohen was right don't forget to listen to Katie Lang. David Lee Roth reminds us you've got to roll with the punches to get to what's real. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this odd cast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Vladimir Putin. Sorry, Vladdy. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much. Till we're together again, please stay safe, stay legendary, and of course, follow your different.